take it a step by step. Father, thank You once again for this church and for its leadership and for everyone that serves You, Father, and for, for every heart that belongs to You. Thank You for all of these things. In Christ's name we pray it all. Amen. One of the, the common phrases that you find in, in Christianity today across the religious landscape of North America is you'll hear people talk about their personal testimony or they'll talk about their witness to God. And a lot of times, you know, in fact most of the time what they're talking about is what they say to other people about God. What is ironic about our passage tonight is it's about God witnessing to us. Have you ever thought about all of the different ways that God witnesses to you and tries to create faith in you, in human beings, in His Son, Jesus Christ? And so if you ask the question, very simple question, what do you need if you are searching for God? What John the Apostle says, there are three things in 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. He says, you will need the water, you will need the blood, and you will need the Spirit. Those three are God's testimony for you. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 9, he says, you know, we accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which He has given about His Son. What John is trying to say is that as you're going through life, trying to live your life as this disciple, as we talked about this morning, uh, faithful, there is a work that God continues to do in your mind and in your heart and in your soul to convict and to convince and to make more concrete your understanding of the power and the presence and the reality of Christ. Now, there have always been those that have talked about Christ. I mean, think about Jesus' trial. We go to the kangaroo trial at the end of the Gospels. There are these false witnesses that are brought out to talk about Jesus uh, with lies and with accusations that are not true. And one of the things that the Gospel writers tell us is that as these men are trying to, to testify against Jesus, none of them could really get their testimony about Jesus straight. And it was apparent to all. God's testimony is different. God's testimony is greater, verse 9, because it is the testimony of God which He has given about His Son. Some years ago, the New Living Bible, or the Living Bible paraphrase came out. A couple of years ago, that paraphrase was turned into a translation, the New Living Translation. It's a very good Bible. I think this particular version of these verses captures very well the truth that John's trying to get across. He says, beginning in verse 6, And Jesus Christ was revealed as God's Son by His baptism in water and by shedding His blood on the cross, not by water only, but by water and blood. And the Spirit, who is truth, confirms it with His testimony. So we have these three witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. What we'll do is we'll begin with the water. Let's talk about the water just for a minute. The water is a reminder that Christ came in the flesh. And this harkens back to, to the beginning of, of the Gospels, Matthew chapter 3, Mark chapter 1, for instance. John the Baptist has arrived on the scene. He's the herald. He is the one that has come in the spirit of Elijah. And he is baptizing people for repentance and for the forgiveness of sins. And he's baptizing near the Jordan because there's a lot of water there. And people are coming out to him by the droves. They're coming out into the desert, into the wilderness to be baptized by John because he is, 
He is this one that looks like Elijah. And he is talking about getting their hearts right because the king is coming. The mountains need to be lowered. The valleys need to be raised up. The paths need to be straightened because the king himself is coming. And one day, in the middle of his preaching, in the middle of his baptizing, in the middle of his, his witnessing about the one that is coming after him, Jesus, the very one he's talking about, comes to John and says, You know what, John? I need to be baptized. And John is taken aback by this, and he says, You know, I think I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus says, You know, uh, we need to do this to fulfill righteousness. And John goes into the water with Jesus and baptized, and as Jesus uh, comes up out of the water and one of the Gospels says, while they are praying, the Spirit of God descends on Jesus like a dove and a voice from heaven says what? This is my Son, whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. And later on, John the Baptist is with some of his disciples and he sees Jesus walk by and he goes, the Lamb of the God that takes away the, the sins of the world. And then there's another time when he's with two of his disciples and, 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 and he's being, or excuse me, he's, he's being questioned about who John really is, John the Baptist really is. And his remarks are, are found in verse 32 and 33 and 34 of John chapter 1. John gave this testimony about Jesus' baptism. He says, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I would not have known him except the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain, he is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I have testified that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist, could you imagine being there on the day when Jesus has the Spirit of God descend on him and the Hebrews would call it the bot call, the little voice or the echo, the the, the voice from heaven that says, This is my Son. And so what Jesus' baptism was, in one, from one angle, is God going public with the identification of Jesus as His Son. And there's something about Jesus being identified publicly every time that we are baptized. Every time we are baptized, we are being baptized into Jesus. It's a baptism of repentance. It's for the forgiveness of sins. It's to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But it is also because it is about repentance. It's aligning ourselves with the kingdom of God. It is our way of publicly, not just this, but it is very much this at the same time, a public declaration that we are making ourselves disciples of Jesus. Now why is this important? for this first century church that John is writing to? Well, it's important because John has to remind this church of, of, of the fact that Jesus came in the flesh. This church, as we've already studied in this series, had become unsettled by people saying that, you know what, Jesus did not really come in the flesh. It was only when, when Jesus died on the cross, it was, you know, it was not Jesus, God Himself, dying in the flesh. It was a form of Gnosticism. It said that the Spirit is good and the body is bad. And the problem with that is that this group was denying that Jesus had come in the flesh. And if Jesus did not die in the flesh, then our sins are not forgiven because the sins that are committed in the body have not been saved, have not been redeemed. The old theologians had a way of saying that that which is unassumed is unredeemed. Meaning that if Jesus did not assume the flesh, then the flesh has not been saved. Transparent moment for your preacher. There's a lot of the sins that I commit that are not just in my head, they're also in my body. 
And one of the one of the the, the most important things about our salvation is knowing that all of us, everything that we are, everything that makes up a human being has been assumed by Christ and having been assumed by Christ and having died in that body and in that, uh, that soul and with that mind, He redeemed everything. In Second John chapter 7, Many deceivers who do not acknowledge that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is a deceiver and the Antichrist. The water is a reminder that Christ came in the flesh. And then number two, the blood is a reminder that Christ is the Savior. At the very beginning of this letter, John says that anyone who says that they do not have sin, they are a liar, the truth is not in them, and not only that, and worst of all, probably, they make God out to be a liar. And that's why the blood of Jesus is an important part of this. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7, he says, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the what? Blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. Now up until the time of Jesus, if we read in Hebrews chapter 9, up until this time, all the human being had was the blood of bulls and goats. And what the Hebrew writer says is this is completely insufficient. It may, it may cleanse you on the outside, but it doesn't even begin to reach down into your heart or into your conscience. It was insufficient. And then he says in verse 12, But Jesus did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once and for all by what? His own blood, having obtained eternal redemption now for a lot of people this is where the rubber kind of hits the road there are some who will accept the testimony of the water that jesus you know was a man but that's about as far as they go jesus is a great teacher he's a great example he's somebody we should emulate he can be your guru he can be somebody that helps train the way that you think maybe the way that you respond or react in certain situations but it is offensive to think the, the very idea of the blood of Jesus, the blood of any human being being shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Okay, Jesus is a great example. Let's just take that. He's a great example through His wise teachings, but He's also a great example of a life that has to be lived. He was sinless. How many of us can say that we are sinless? That we are without sin? You know, the problem is not exactly the fact that I need an example, even though I need an example every day. The problem, the crux of the matter for me is that I need a Savior because of the sins that are committed in my body. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived and He died the death that we should have died because we are guilty of sin. And the blood says that Jesus is not just our example but our Savior. And over in chapter 2 and verse 2 of 1 John, it says, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. You know, one of the things that we don't talk about, maybe we should be talking about it more often, is you know, do you, do, we talk about what happens on the cross, but do you remember what was happening around the cross when Jesus died on that day? curtain in the temple is torn in two, symbolizing the fact that there, is no, that there is no barrier between our coming into the presence of God. The access to God has been attained by Christ's sacrifice. 
and the sky was darkened in the middle of the afternoon. And one of the things that, when you think about it, must have been incredibly frightening to people are the graves opening up and the dead coming back to life for a period of time and interacting with their loved ones. And all of this was a sign. It was a witness to the fact that the world is now different. That on this day, all of history changed. On this day, the universe is going to be different. On this day that Jesus died, the future of the entire universe is going to be completely different because Jesus is not just a man, but a man who became a Savior dying on the cross. And then lastly, the Spirit is a reminder that Jesus is Lord. And this is one of the fantastic things that God does for every believer. You'll remember in Acts chapter 10, Peter's preaching to Cornelius and his household in Caesarea Maritima. And as he's preaching, there, he makes this very interesting comment in Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 37. He says, You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And how he went around doing good and healing all those who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Now, one of the things that happens when we talk about the miracles is that, you know, the problem in thinking about miracles is to think about them one-dimensionally. I mean, God is at work. There's a lot of things that are happening at the very top. God, or maybe I should say at the very bottom, at the, at the least common denominator in these miracles, is that there were people that were hurting and they needed to be saved and they needed to be helped and they needed to be, to be cured from whatever it was that was ailing them, from demon possession to blindness to, to muteness to deafness to whatever it might be. They needed to be healed. And God's coming into the world in, in, in the, the, the body, in the, in the person of Jesus. God the Son was an, an, uh, an intervention of God's power and compassion and mercy upon all of humanity. But then there was also, uh, at, at one level, all of these signs or these miracles were done in order for people to look at Jesus differently. In Mark chapter 2, there's Jesus who is, um, who is teaching there in Capernaum. It's... it's uh, it's, a, it's one of those great teaching moments where everybody in the town has heard about Jesus. They're coming. They're thronging to the place where he is staying. And there are, are just people everywhere. All the exits are blocked off. The fire marshal in Capernaum is having a fit. And the next thing you know, there are these guys who have a paralyzed man, a friend of theirs who is a paralytic. He's on a mat. He can't get up and walk. Been that way for a long time. They have faith in Jesus. And they want to get this man to the Christ in order for him to be healed. And they take him to Jesus, and, and they can't get through because of all of the people blocking the exits. But these guys are not going to be deterred. They are not going to be held off from getting this guy to Jesus because of a few, you know, uh, a few handfuls of people that are blocking exits. And so they go on top of the roof, they dig a hole in the roof, drop the man on the mat through the roof in front of Jesus, and Jesus sees their faith. And the next thing, I mean, we're, just, we're way ahead of what Mark is trying to write here in Mark chapter 2. We think he's going to say to that guy, get up and walk. But he doesn't. What does he say? Your sins are forgiven. And everybody comes un uncorked at that point. You know, who in the world can forgive sins except God? And because Jesus knows in their hearts what they're thinking, he says, which is easier? I mean, think about this. It's not your question, which is easier? To say to this man, get up and walk. Or to say to this man, your sins are forgiven. Well, one can be proven, the other cannot, at least in that moment. And they, they get that. And they say, well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. The harder thing is to say to that guy, get up and walk. And what does Jesus say? So that you know that I'm different. 
that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, I say to you, get up and walk. And what did he do? He got up and he walked, right? He picked up his mat and he walked out. And everybody is completely astonished. Well, then there is also a level in which these, these miracles and these signs are not just to help people. And they're not just to get people to look at Jesus and what He's teaching and what He's doing in a different way, but it's also to bring about repentance. And one of the things that Jesus says, is, in fact, it's, it's sort of a frightening thing to think about in light of, of judgment, is Jesus says, you know, when He talks about what is known as the evangelistic triangle, Bethsaida, Chorazin, and Capernaum, there on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, He says, you know what? Woe to you. Because if these signs that have been done in you, and the gospel tells that most of his miracles were done in these places, if Sodom and Gomorrah had seen what you have seen, these miracles, they would have repented and they would exist to this very day. One of the things that, that, that the gospels tell us about the work of the Spirit in Jesus in doing these miracles and doing good is that it was to focus people's minds on what it is that's happening in front of them in the, pre in, in the body of Jesus, in the person of Jesus. And so we have Matthew chapter 12. And Jesus is healing a demon-possessed man who's both blind and mute, and everyone is completely astonished at the miracle. That is, except the Pharisees. The Pharisees, because Jesus is not like them, they want Jesus to be a Pharisee, but Jesus is not a Pharisee. And so they don't really like Him all that much, and they're looking for reasons to discredit Him. And they see this thing that he has done, but they're not. Even if they are impressed, they don't act like they're impressed. And even though it is a miracle that nobody can deny, the the, the Pharisees come up with this really quick way of of, of disdaining and and completely uh, taking away, uh, at least in their mind, the significance of the miracle. And they say, you know what? Yeah, it's a miracle, but you know by whose power he did it? Beelzebub. And it's by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of the demons, that he's been able to do this. Don't be impressed with that. Hate him. Hate him for these miracles. And this is where Jesus gives the great, great message or, or the great saying about a house being divided against it, itself. And he's saying, why would, if I'm working by Beelzebub, why would I try to tear down my own kingdom? Think about it. It doesn't make sense. And then he says in verse 31, I also tell you this. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Because the Spirit is saying some very important, specific, incredibly life-changing, profound, utterly mind-boggling things about Christ. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. The Spirit, through these miracles, was witnessing to Christ. And to speak against that Spirit was to blaspheme that Spirit, which became the unforgivable thing. Later on in, in Acts chapter 5, Peter's in front of the Sanhedrin after healing and teaching in Solomon's colonnade there in Jerusalem. And, and they've been called you know, in front of the Sanhedrin, and they said, we thought we told you not to say anything in this man's name. And all of the disciples, the apostles, there together say, you know, we're not going to obey men, we're going to obey God. And then they say, you know what, what we're talking about is pretty important here. It's about Jesus who was resurrected from the grave by God, and He's the very one that you crucified. You're the ones that killed Him. And then in verse 32, it says, we're witnesses of all these things. We saw this with our own eyes. Peter, myself, 
I was there. I saw it. John says, I was there too. All of the apostles say, we are witnesses of these things and so is what? The Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. You know, the Spirit of God is a pretty amazing phenomenon and a tremendous witness to the truth about Jesus. You know, a lot of times, you know, we don't give the Spirit enough credit in the power that is in preaching. The power of preaching is not in the eloquence. The power of preaching is not in its ability to entertain. The power of preaching is in the power of the Spirit. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12, Peter is saying, you know, it's revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that they have now been told, uh, that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Another area of the Spirit. Think about how God witnesses to the truth of Jesus through this book right here. I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prophecies that have been written over thousands of years, and all of them elegantly coming to fruition, fulfilled in the Christ. A coincidence? And the Spirit testifies every day in your heart that you belong to God. You know, Paul in Ephesians says a lot of really important things about the Spirit. In chapter 3, the Spirit is what strengthens us in the inner man, allowing us to, to, to be faithful. I don't know how it works. I just trust that it's true that part of God's gift to me, it, that Spirit in, my, in, in, in me, the indwelling of the Spirit, somehow strengthens me in my, my desire to live a life that is worthy of the Gospel. He says over in chapter 1, he says, you know what, uh, one of the things that is really important about your life as a Christian is the knowledge that you have of the work of the Spirit in you One of these is that God has put that Spirit in you like a deposit, like earnest money, guaranteeing everything in the end. You know, I don't know about you, but from time to time, you know, you run into conversations, you run into people who are struggling with the idea of, you know, I I, I feel good right now, I feel the peace, I feel... But what happens when I'm right there on the edge of the cliff and I'm about, you know, everything that I ever wanted to come true in Christ, while I'm standing there right on the cliff, about to enter in the world to come, the doubts, the darkness, the uncertainty, the things that I don't know to expect through that, 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 that portal of death into the next world. That I go. How, how do I know that these things are true? Paul says, I know how you feel about that. I, I know how it feels to have you know, uncertainty. I know, but let me tell you about the Spirit of God. And this is why you can praise God. And he does that three times in the first chapter. It's like a good church of Christ hymn. There are three verses. What God has done, what Christ has done, and what the Spirit has done. And each one of those have the same course. To the praise of His glory. To the praise of His glory. You know how you praise God every day? is in understanding what the Spirit is doing for you. God has put it in your heart as a deposit, as earnest money. And when I bought my house... I gave the real estate agent $500 in cash, and I said, that's the one we want. Ellen and I, were one mind. That's the house we want. She went, and she made the deal. Now, we signed the documents. We started moving forward. And if we had decided for some reason, you know, we kind of like this house over here, I think we're going to renege on that deal. What happens to that $500 cash? It becomes a $500 loss, right? I don't have that anymore because I reneged on the deal. Now, this is really interesting about God. God takes... God the Spirit, and puts His Spirit in you as a deposit guaranteeing all of those promises, all of those things in the future. 
The point being that if God reneges on any of those promises, He says, it's never going to happen. You know, I, I've decided I'm going to change my mind. Right there at death's door, comes to you and says, you know what? The promise is, I don't know. They're not going to happen. You know what happens to His Spirit that He's given you as a deposit? He loses that Spirit. And what happens when God the Father loses God the Spirit? He stops being God. How great is that? That God has put His entire being, on, His entire being is staked on the promises. Well, there's another thing that that Spirit does. Is every day there are influences in your life. There are things that you see, things that you hear, things that you experience. There are thoughts that come into your mind. You don't know where they come from. And you wonder, am I really saved or not? Am I, am I really a child of God? Am I the only one that feels that from time to time? A struggle, something happens, and I go, oh my goodness, I've committed this great sin. One of the important things that the Spirit testifies to is the fact that we are the children of God. There is a voice of God that confirms, that tells you, that whispers in your soul that you are a child of God. Romans chapter 8. You didn't receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. But you receive the spirit of sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. Which is, which is the Aramaic. That's what little kids would say to their dad. If, if Jordan or Jessica were five years old and we were living in Israel in the first century, we were living in you know, Cana of Galilee, they would see me as I come into the door from the field, and they would go, Abba. They would say, Oh, Dad. The Spirit, verse 16, Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now again, I don't know the nuts and bolts of that. What I know is that it's God's Spirit that is testifying, that is witnessing somehow to our spirit confirming the fact that we are God's children. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 3, I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Three witnesses, the water and the blood and the Spirit. This is the testimony of God to you, to me, to all of us about the Christ. Are we listening to the testimony? Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now, and we're going to bless each other by the singing of it and the lifting up of praise to God for the greatness of His witness, of His testimony to us, His Spirit testifying to our spirit that we truly are the children of God that we are His, that, that Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross to save us from our sins. Not just the sins of our mind, but the sins, the, the, the all-encompassing global sphere of, of sin that we live in. That's our body and our mind. And, and, and the Spirit of God being poured